So the first thing I, I think would really be a huge development would be our ability to rapidly and ideally at zero marginal cost read, write and reprogram this regulatory gene. So if we can get to a point in the next decade where an individual's dark matter, their regulatory genome, the RNAs associated with it, the activity of the regulatory genome can be rapidly read, I think that would be very, very powerful when we start to think about patient-specific precision therapeutic approaches. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I am your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. In today's episode, we dive deep into a novel therapeutic class of lone non-coding RNAs. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Samir Unsein, the CEO and co-founder of Haya Therapeutics. Haya is a Swiss-based company that develops innovative tissue and cell-selective genomic medicines for various diseases based on lone non-coding RNAs. Samir is a molecular biologist by training. He is a true expert in the field of lone non-coding RNAs with more than 20 research papers out of his PhD and postdoc research. He recently took Haya out of stealth mode and raised with the company a stunning Series A round of about $20 million. Samir, thank you so much for accepting my invitation and welcome on the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation and I look forward to it. Great. So let's start with your story. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself, about your background, and uh, how did it lead you to founding Haya? Sure. Uh, so I guess really the story started when I was 10 years old and uh, my mother took me to see the movie Jurassic Park, which I think has inspired many molecular biologists. So from that moment on, I became really fascinated with DNA and in particular molecular biology. And then in 2001, I started my bachelor's degree at the University of Leeds studying biochemistry and molecular biology. And, and that was really, I say, where my academic career started and fascination with the, the non-coding regulatory genome. So you probably remember 2001, I think, is quite an important year for biology. That was the year the human genome uh, where the sequence was, was announced. And I vividly remember at the time the excitement and also the, the shock and the surprise when we really started to understand that the human genome consisted of less than 30,000 protein coding genes. Actually, we realized the human genome was less than 2% of it was actually coding for protein or genes as we considered them at that time. And that was obviously a huge surprise and, and very exciting. But really what, what inspired my academic career was for, at that period was the concept that 98% of our genome was junk DNA. It wasn't really doing anything interesting and it was potentially trash. And that really inspired my, my research career because over the subsequent, I would say, 10, 15 years, I essentially spent my, my academic career studying this, this junk. And really what we went on to discover as a community 
some, some incredible insights that this 98% of your genome that is junk is actually uh, regulatory. It's, it's not junk, it's, we now call it dark matter. And actually one of the reasons we call it dark matter is because we, we now understand how important it is, especially when we think about how the genome responds to the environment, and what makes us different from flies or worms. Um, but we don't know exactly how it's doing it and what it's doing and, and what are the mechanisms involved in, in this function of the dark matter. And that essentially has been my, my, my career as an academic was starting to assess and analyze this dark matter. Primarily I focused in, in the heart in cardiology. So I did a PhD at the University of Leicester in a department led by uh, Sir Nilesh Samani. So very much focusing on understanding the switches in your dark matter that control the activity of protein protein coding genes in cardiac development and disease. Uh, and I stayed in the cardiology field up until, uh, up until now, actually. So from University of Leicester, I went to the postdoctoral studies in London at UCL, studying transcription factors, so these protein factors that bind your regulatory genome, your dark matter. And then finally, I moved to Switzerland in 2011. And uh, 2011 was an interesting time because at that moment in time, we had another surprise around the, the dark matter of the genome, which was a lot of this regulatory uh, portion wasn't just acting to recruit proteins to regulate the switches, the transcription factors, but was also actively transcribed. And actually, it turns out more than 80% of your whole genome is being transcribed into RNA. And that really coincided with the projects I, I came to Switzerland to essentially establish here at the Experimental Cardiology Unit, which was to try to map and explore this, this RNA landscape in your dark matter. Um, from 2011 until 2018, actually, was really a, a period of intense mapping and characterization of these new RNAs, these long encoding RNAs in the heart, both in heart development and heart disease. And uh, actually, uh, as an academic, I, I contributed to the discovery of a number of these molecules. Probably two of the best known are a long encoding RNA called Carmen, which is emerging as a really important regulator of cardiovascular uh, cell fate, so smooth muscle cells, and WISPR, which really the discovery of WISPR, which I'm sure we can talk about, was what led me to realize that there's a huge therapeutic potential in these molecules and, and found higher therapeutics in the summer of 2019. Perfect. That sounds great. Samir, I think what our audience would be really eager to hear uh, is a story how you actually founded the company and what were the main challenges in bringing it out of stealth mode uh, for the last two years? Sure. So what drove me to found the company was the essential real-world solution we thought we'd identified to this big problem of fibrosis or tissue scouring, which we know is a driver of heart failure. So when we had the, the WISPR data, we published the WISPR study in 2017. And me personally, I realized WISPR could be a next generation antifibrotic target for the heart. So from 2017 up until essentially 2019, as I was finishing my, my research studies, I started to essentially meet investors. I spent a lot of time traveling in, in the US and trying to meet investors, primarily venture capitalists, to, to find out if there was any interest in the dark matter, and in particular long non-coding RNAs like, like Whisper. Now, from a challenge perspective, I think it was probably a little bit early at that moment in time. So 2018, 2019, I think 
higher therapeutics hypothesis, therapeutic hypothesis was not only first in class, but you could argue it was first in biology, which proved a significant challenge because obviously when you're looking to commercialize uh, a therapeutic, there's a lot of risk associated with that. And the risk associated with the first in biology approach is extremely high, even for venture capitalists. So it took us probably uh, almost two years of communicating, presenting the work, uh, spent a lot of time with a number of different investors, including obviously our, our lead investor for this round, to really convince them of the potential of this therapeutic hypothesis. And then ultimately, bizarrely, I think we were aided in the end by both the maturation of the science, so link biology as a field has really matured the last year, year and a half, but also the let's say, the, the, the highlighting of the power of RNA as a therapeutic in terms of synthetic RNAs or modified RNAs, as we've seen with, with the COVID uh, vaccines, and in terms of targeting RNAs using RNA-targeting therapeutics, as we've seen with the, the rapidly increasing approvals of, for example, antisense oligonucleotides. nucleotides. So the convergence of these, let's say, maturities in the technology and the science really then allow us to, to close our seed round and, and come out of stealth mode. Perfect. Samir, I think what would be uh, also very, very interesting for our listeners to hear is essentially the fundamentals behind this idea. So maybe you could give our audience just a quick brief on, on the role of lone non-coding RNAs and their potential role as therapeutic agent. When you think about long non-coding RNA biology and, and their functions, the take-home message really that I'd like to emphasize is what these molecules do is they confer on the proteins that your cell expresses context and sequence-based specificity. So when you think about the building blocks of your cell, the proteins, you have this limited finite number of proteins, say 20,000, which in combinations, the same proteins are doing different things all over the body. So they're very pleiotropic in their activity. And what we've understood is that long non-coding RNAs, which are obviously derived from this, this non-coding portion of your genome, this regulatory dark matter, they confer specialization, context specificity, and also sequence-based specificity on intrinsically analog and not sequence-sensitive protein complexes. And this is very interesting both in terms of biology because it now gives us insights in basic biology of how do the same proteins do very different things and how are they regulated very specifically in different tissues. Well, it appears the regulatory genome and these RNAs produced by it confer that specialization. But it also then starts to provide an interesting perspective when you think about drugging protein-dependent pathways. So classically, the biotechnology and the pharmaceutical industry is trying to create small molecules or antibodies against these pleiotropic protein master regulators of pathways that control disease. Typically, many of these pathways are involved in regulating cell identity, for example, in fibrosis from a fibroblast to the effector cell of fibrosis, the myofibroblast. So the way people try to drug these disease processes is by targeting these pleiotropic proteins. And ultimately, what we've discovered is that this poses huge challenges when you start looking at safety of these therapeutic approaches. So when we understood what link RNAs are doing, and when we think about what link RNAs are doing in terms of their function, it immediately raises this possibility 
of selectivity and specificity when you want to start jogging protein-dependent pathways of interest. Secondly, which is in a way linked to that, is the efficacy aspect of why link RNA targeting is important. So at Higher Therapeutics, we're very much focused on common and chronic diseases associated with aging, and in particular, cellular processes that drive these diseases. And as you're probably aware, fibrosis, this process of tissue scarring, is really a driver of many, many common diseases. And when you look at the biology of common diseases, it's essentially your cells responding to the environment. So how do the cells perceive the environment and how do these environmental cues and stresses change cell behavior and cell identity? And at the, at the level of the molecular level, this is mediated by the regulatory genome. And in particular, we now realize these long non-coding RNAs are actually the interface between these environmental cues and signals and the downstream genomic pathways that change cell identity to control disease. So if you want to really in a selective way block, say for example, the activity of a, a fibroblast, try to find the nexus point where the upstream environmental signals, which activate all these pleiotropic protein complexes, integrate to then drive the downstream pathways. And all of that integration and information processing happens in the regulatory genome and long non-coding RNAs hardwired. So we've also understood by blocking the long non-coding RNAs, you have a much more potent cell-selective effect on these pathways that drive fibrosis. And then finally, these long non-coding RNAs, the majority of them, and especially those that we study, are incredibly tissue, cell, and context-specific. So if you look at them as a class of biomolecules and compare them to protein-coding genes, so messenger RNAs, you'll find that they're incredibly more specific to tissues and cell types than, than messenger RNAs. And this, again, brings another level of specificity and selectivity when you think about therapeutic intervention. And maybe the last most important thing from a therapeutic perspective is drug ability. So with the advances in RNA targeting therapies, be that classical approaches using antisense, small interfering RNAs, and now we have the emergence of CRISPR-based approaches as well as small molecules, RNAs can be readily, readily drugged in, a, in an accessible way. So these parameters combined really render them, we believe, as next-generation therapeutic targets. We think link RNAs offer the possibility for incredibly effective, very safe and highly accessible therapeutics. Fantastic. Yeah, sounds, sounds really exciting. My next question would be, where does the higher play in, in that space? So uh, what exactly are you trying to target first? And are you planning to manufacture those, uh, those link RNAs and, and get them to, to clinics? Sure. So really what Hire is doing is leveraging these, these properties of long non-coding RNAs. So the, the, the target profile is link RNAs as a therapy we're leveraging to develop primarily antisense oligonucleotides. So we, we design and then we can manufacture them using uh, contract manufacturers, for example, with second generation antisense, but we design them against our novel long non-coding RNAs that we identify to block the activity of myofibromas in a cell and tissue selective manner. So if we look at our first target, it's a long non-coding RNA called WISPA, which is very selective to the heart. 
So Whisper is a very powerful regulator of myofibroblast activation. So these are the effector cells that cause fibrosis, but it's specific to myofibroblasts of cardiac specific origin. So what this means is that we can use and administer systemically a modified antisensorial nucleotide. It can be delivered systemically. It can be taken up by essentially all of the typical tissues where you see biodistribution of antisense, including which uh, one of those tissues where you do have some uptake, although minor, is the heart. And when this antisense finds its target, which in our case is cardiac specific, it can en engage it and degrade it. And by degrading whisper, what we've shown in a number of rodent preclinical models is that we have a, a really powerful potent antifibrotic effects, specifically in the heart and not other tissues. So our WISPR uh, targeting antisense is now going forward. We're testing tool compounds uh, over the next six to 12 months in large animal models to get our final large animal translational proof of concept before IND enabling toxin, hopefully in the next 24 to to 36 months, we'll be in a position where we can consider entering the clinic for first in, in human uh, trials. Now, targeting whisper as an antifibrotic therapy in the heart, ultimately we believe could bring a lot of potential to patients suffering with diastolic dysfunction uh, during heart failure. So heart failure would preserve ejection fraction, which as you may be aware, your listeners may be aware, represents about 50% of all heart failure, which globally impacts around one in five people at some point in their life. But as our initial uh, patient population, higher is going to focus on more discrete sets of patients that suffer with heart failure as a consequence of quite rare genetic diseases. So actually our first indication of interest is a subset of patients who suffer with non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So this is a, a genetic disease where unfortunately a significant fraction of these patients will go on to develop heart failure. They're at very high risk, unfortunately, of, of sudden cardiac death. And unfortunately, this patient population who suffer with diastolic dysfunction, so it's very similar to HEFPEF, have really no available therapies apart from ultimately heart transplantation. So our lead compound for whisper targeting will be initially tested in, in this patient population. But as I always like to try to emphasize to, to people, higher therapeutics is very much more than just a, a whisper to the heart, so to speak. We've really leveraged these insights that we've developed around long non-coding RNA discovery and targeting and fibrosis in the heart to a number of different tissues. So we've already now identified targets that have similar characteristics to whisper. So these long non-coding RNA uh, characteristics that we think are attractive. We've identified them in other fibrotic tissues and indications that are primarily driven by this activation of fibroblasts. So you can think about indications in the lung, in the kidney. There's also some interesting biology happening in the tumor microenvironment. So we're very much building out our platform and our discovery engine to identify these long non-coding RNA targets across multiple fibrotic tissue and indication areas. Yeah, sounds very exciting. And uh, I think it's a very important problem that you are trying to solve with uh, fibrosis. And like that analogy, whisper, whisper to the heart. <laughs> that's that's important. Um, Samir, what I also would like to know is what are the other indications where you do see potential for link RNAs in the future? So my answer here is 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 going to be quite broad uh, with respect to the the underlying biology. So any 
disease where it's really driven by the way the genome is interfacing with the environment and how that interface can change cell behavior and cell identity. Theoretically, could be an interesting disease area for link RNA targeting therapies. So obviously, we're very focused at higher. We see a specific unmet need in the fibrosis space. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, we think fibrosis in particular would really benefit from tissue-specific approaches. And that's why initially we're focusing our attention specifically in diseases associated with fibrosis. However, if you look in the literature, every single week, novel link RNAs are being associated with every single indication you could imagine, from oncology to the central nervous system. And actually, from a biology perspective, if you look at link RNA diversity and functions, you see some incredible activity in the brain. And I think that could be an area maybe in the next a decade or so, or maybe even shorter, where we'll see some real breakthroughs and insights into CNS-associated disorders driven by this long-term cutting RNA landscape. We are doing this show for you, and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic, or recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. You can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To download the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T dot The show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. Make sure to check them out. And don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating and leave a comment. It will help us make this show better. And now, let's get back to the interview. Samir, so you also alluded to the topic of aging before. Um, and I want to get your thoughts on that. Uh, where do you see the role of link RNAs in uh, combating aging? And is it at all possible to reverse aging, in your opinion? So, yeah, tough, uh, tough and maybe somewhat controversial question, which is good. So, I don't know the answer to whether we can reverse aging. Uh, I would be inclined, based on what I see and maybe a lot of the scientists I speak to in that space, which is a new emerging area for myself personally, that I think there are opportunities to potentially rejuvenate and reverse aging, maybe in specific tissues in particular. And what I learn and what I hear from my colleagues who are experts uh, compared to me in this field is they consider aging at the molecular level a dysregulation of the epigenome. I, I hear this a lot that when you look at this aging process, you see this programming this age-associated programming of the epigenome, which seems to be associated with many of the disease-associated, let's say, dysfunction in tissue physiology and homeostasis. And if that is the case, then I'm quite optimistic about the, the hypothesis that potentially rejuvenation can be attempted in, in specific tissues because the epigenome is dynamic, and when you actually look at one of the most important functions of long non coding RNAs coming onto the topic, which I didn't highlight earlier, is they're very important for regulating all of the protein complexes that essentially lay down the epigenome, the dynamic cell 
and context-specific manner. So if the approach that's going to succeed in, in, in anti-aging is reprogramming the epigenome, which I know is an area of strong interest, then I think link RNA is a really exciting target. Because I think what they can provide, obviously this is something higher is, is, is interested in, because we are interested in chronic and common diseases that are associated with aging in particular. We think that by leveraging long encoding RNAs and therapeutic modalities to modulate link RNA activity, you could start to envisage a way to selectively reprogram the epigenome in, in tissues associated with dysfunction linked to the aging process. So that would be my, my speculative, let's say, uh, hypothesis. But if, if the epigenome needs to be reprogrammed, I think there are opportunities for that in the long encoding RNA landscape. And I think it could be quite a powerful way to reprogram the epigenome. Yeah, sounds fantastic and sounds like a future. And speaking of future, so I would like to get your take on what you would expect to be the three major developments in the field of precision medicine over the next 10 years. Oh, so here I'm going to be a little bit biased and, and maybe try to present three things that I would like to see maybe particularly into the science and the biology that we're working on which I think are, are very relevant for this question. So the first thing I, I think would really be a huge development would be our ability to rapidly and ideally at zero marginal cost read, write and reprogram this regulatory genome. So if we can get to a point in the next decade where an individual's dark matter, their regulatory genome, the RNAs associated with it, the activity of the regulatory genome can be rapidly read, I think that would be very, very powerful when you start to think about patient-specific precision therapeutic approaches. And in addition to being rapidly read, if our technologies allow us to start writing this regulatory genome, potentially using, for example, genome editing, or reprogram this regulatory genome, for example, via RNA targeting therapeutics to, say, remodel the long non-coding RNA landscape, I think we can really envisage a future where a patient can be identified with a specific regulatory genome signature and then rapidly treated based on that signature. The second point linked to that would be improving the precision, which I know there's a lot of companies and, and scientists working hard at this, is the precision of the, the, the therapeutic modalities we currently have to target the regulatory genome. So in particular, when I think about this, I think about RNA targeting therapies, be that uh, antisense oligonucleotides, be that small interfering RNAs, for example, or, or for example, CRISPR uh, approaches. I would love if in the next 10 years we have very precise ways to target these modalities to the correct tissue of interest, ideally to the cell type within that tissue, and ultimately, I believe, to subcellular compounds within that cell. If we can achieve that level of precision at the right time, I think that will really bring huge value to the precision med uh, medicine field. And then maybe finally, I think if we have the tools that I just mentioned to, to read, write, uh, and essentially reprogram the regulatory genome, we should be at a point, I hope, where we can start to build in silico models, computational models, and simulate regulatory, regulatory genome activity. If we can have that depth of understanding of the logic of the regulatory genome, we could envisage a future where individual patients, based on those parameters, 
we can in silico computationally start to model what's happening and start to rapidly think about patient-specific approaches to therapeutically intervene and hopefully uh, have a big impact on their disease process. So I think they would be the three uh, areas that uh, I would see the biggest um, excitement from my perspective in terms of treating individual patients, if that's what we mean by precision medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like a very exciting future. And uh, Samir, who would thought that um, regulatory genome can play such an important role in uh, our ability to treat different diseases? I think 10, especially 20 years ago, anyone would be super skeptical. But it's great to see a lot of that very interesting, exciting science coming out of academia and now being translated to, into applicable technologies. Totally agree. It's very, very exciting. Yeah, and, and thanks a lot for, for, for picking the flag on that, right, and, and, and leading the way. I think it's important. And speaking of leading the way, you are a very inspirational figure for many young scientists who think about starting their own company. So which one advice would you give to, to those young researchers who are thinking about venturing into something uh, in deep tech, perhaps using their PhD or postdoc research? Yeah. So advice, I think I'd actually, I'd actually advise them to ask themselves some questions that I think there is some, from my, my journey, there is some important things that I've learned, which I think could be translated into questions that I, I asked myself during the process. And so maybe if I just give a couple of those questions that if you're really thinking about taking your science and trying to build a company around it, you should really ask yourself and answer in an honest way before starting the journey because it, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a challenging journey. So the questions I would ask myself or, and I would advise anybody to ask, ask themselves is, does your amazing, interesting science, and when I look at the amazing science that is being conducted now, especially in this space, it's truly, it's truly inspiring the insights we're getting at the scientific and the basic science level. But a really important question you have to ask yourself very early is, does this science solve a real-world clinical problem? And more importantly, in a translatable and actually commercially viable way. So one of the things I've realized with my own science is that good science and discovery does not necessarily equal, it's not equaling a viable solution or a therapeutic. So I think that's a key first question. Linked to that is, if your answer to that is yes, are you ready as an individual to go all in? So to really have skin in the game, to build this uh, from the beginning, because it's very important that the scientists who come up with the science and, and the discovery are ready to commit to, to drive the translation. I think this is really, really important. One of the things I've learned <laughs> as a scientist is you need to be more of an artist and, not, and less of an intellectual, if that makes sense. So what I mean by that, not in an in a, in a anti-intellectual way, is scientists, we, we tend to, to make things very, very complicated, which is part of our job. We're working on very, very complicated things. So we can take simple things and make them complex. Whereas I think as you start to go into, into creating a company and try to communicate your science, you need to think as more of an artist and take the complicated things and make them simple. Are you ready and do you want to do that? And finally, uh, something I've learned is you have to be ready. Are you ready to hear no? And in particular, are you ready to have your science or your solution 
stress tested in a very, very strong way. Uh, and sometimes stress tested in an impolite way. So having gone through the process of peer review to publish academic articles, which is a very tough journey as many academic scientists know, I can also tell you that the stress testing and the peer review when it comes to financing and technology is, uh, I would say, more than comparable and in many ways a lot more challenging. So I think if, if those four things, your answer is yes, 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 then, then go for it. It's very rewarding. Uh, it's a challenge. Be persistent, but, but go for it. Great. Yeah, I think this is a very valuable advice. And maybe following up on that last point, so I would like to ask you, what were, in your opinion, the biggest challenges in convincing investors to, to get on board and uh, what it took to get that level of confidence in, in their mind to, to finally raise the funds? So I think one of the first things is when it's very new science and biology and a new target class, the target class typically hasn't been validated by hundreds of other labs or industry. So one of the major issues we first got was, okay, you've discovered these long-known coding RNAs. Who else in industry or in academia has validated these targets and validated the, the disease-modifying effects of targeting long-known coding RNAs? And obviously, sometimes being early is worked as a disadvantage because there isn't a lot of benchmarks and there is nobody actually at that time in, in, in industry, at least, who really validated long-known coding RNAs as a target. And really the way to, to go through the, the process is generate more data, have independent scientists and independent academics and potential industry uh, members support the therapeutic hypothesis by judging your science, talking with them and doing more experiments. So really data is everything and building solid data, which is also supported by independent scientists, uh, is really, really value. And also for us, again, timing, uh, I'd like to give more, more specific answers of what we did, but we also, in a, in a sense, ultimately benefited from timing. So as more antisense oligonucleotides were getting approved and advancing through clinical development by other companies, this brought a lot of confidence in the therapeutic modality. As the COVID pandemic hit and then we saw the incredible speed and uh, acceleration uh, ultimately efficacy of RNAs as, as therapeutics, so obviously by Moderna and BioNTech, this brought a huge confidence to the field. So it's a hybrid between independent support and validation for your data and your approach and timing and the landscape, the ecosystem in general. Got it. Yeah, um, completely agree. And Samir, thank you so much for, for joining us for this podcast. This was extremely interesting to chat with you about this very exciting and upcoming uh, field of, of link RNAs. Thanks a lot for sharing your experiences with Founding High. I think this is extremely useful and extremely helpful for anyone in our audience who thinks about starting their own company. So thanks a lot for, for joining us today. And before I let you go, one last question. Where our audience can find you online if they want to reach out? So I think... Uh, it, probably the best way is actually through through the, the, the company website, so hiretx.com. There on, on my profile, you'll see you'll have a direct link to Twitter and LinkedIn. So in terms of social media, the best place to connect with me would be either LinkedIn or uh, Twitter. 
Great. Samir, thanks a lot. This was amazing. Wish you and Haya lots of successes in the future. We'll surely follow your story with great interest and I'll hope to speak to you soon. Many thanks, Sasha, and thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to, to talk to you on this, on this exciting podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to the Personalized Medicine Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver the best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t dot And engage with us on social media where we regularly share the news and exciting content on personalized medicine. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook just by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast. Or use our handle, PMATCAST. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest for the show, write us an email to team at pmatcast.com. Have a great day and until next time.